welcome to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Brian Broder and Adrian Blevins. Hello, and welcome to the Association of Writers and Writing Programs podcast. I'm Brian Broder, and I'm here at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. with poet Adrian Blevins. Adrian Blevins is the author of two collections of poetry, most recently Live from the Homesick Jamboree. She won the 2004 Kate Tufts Discovery Award for her book The Brass Girl Brouhaha, and is also the recipient of a Roma Jaffs Writers Foundation Award, a Bright Hill Press Chapbook Award for The Man Who Went Out for Cigarettes, and the Lamar York Prize for Nonfiction. She teaches at Colby College in Waterville, Maine. Adrian Blevins, welcome. Hey, Brian, you have a beautiful voice. You do you're, too. you're perfectly seated for this. <laughs> Thank you. Would you As, mind uh, uh, reading a poem to get us started? Sure. This is Dear Reader. Is it just me, or am I cooking now? Honey child, don't believe a word of it. I can't drink champagne, and artichokes give me earaches. Even the herb garden is over and done with. It's a waste of time and a pain in the ass. Who cares about parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme? Why are there too many cooks in the kitchen, and thunderstorms, and moths, and bridges, and monkeys, and shoes? What's the deal with fishing lures, and why aren't there enough hours in the day? Why does Terry Gross have to say fresh air the way she does? What is wrong with her? She should be beaten within an inch of her life. She, sh she should be shot. I have really got some issues with Terry Gross. Terry Gross really thinks she's hot. Everyone thinks they are really hot. They are driving hot cars, they are buying hot beds, they are jumping up and down on the sidewalks going hot, hot, hot. Even him, even he thinks he's hot. He walks like a girl, he shops at the co-op, he peeks in on Elizabeth, who has always thought she was really, really hot. I'm asking you this, who cares about the apricot? Does he really eat free-range chickens? And why won't his canoe sink? I've got a lot of on my mind. I'm worried all the time. I've got a migraine, an appointment with a dermatologist, and no time to kill. My mother-in-law is a Jesus freak. She's a walking advertisement for Jesus. Well, maybe she's right. Maybe that's the way to go. Maybe Jesus is hotter than anyone, a hot tamale and hot to trot. Maybe Jesus ought to come down here right now and show me a thing or two. What would he do? Draw me a bath or make me a cake? I would do something. I would undress him. I would relieve him of his robe. I would get out my camera and take a picture and send it right on down the line to you. Great. Thank you. Uh, it's quite a provocative image to end the poem with stripping Jesus naked and taking his picture. <laughs> uh, <laughs> many of your poems have this quality of the taboo of something forbidden being revealed. Um, would you agree with this assessment? or? I would agree with the assessment, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and is that, um, is that, that must be, you know, just sort of this thing that naturally occurs in your work when you're writing. I'm, I'm sure it's not a conscious decision on your part. <laughs> it's something that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I was tr trying to think about, um, I'm doing this thing at the Frost Place, place this summer, and I was trying to sort of plan what I was going to do. Yeah. And I think one of the things I was thinking about was this idea of permission-giving poets, like, who are you, you know, I think the overall theme for this one workshop is going to be the mother-father poets, the, the people who have met the most, who taught us the things we need to know. And sort of kind of turn that into this idea of permission-giving poets. People who somehow gave me the permission to do things, to say things that I, 
wouldn't have given myself, especially in the South, um, especially being female in the South. And so there's this whole, there's a bunch of taboo stuff. And I think that really the first, there are two, two main ones. There are lots of permission, different kinds of permission. But I think C.K. Williams was one of them. Um, some of those, you know, it's like urban gritty stuff, yeah. but it's still, he says things that, um, and I think he taught me that. And probably Sharon, I was too early on. Yeah. Um, and I know it's a sort of a taboo word, and so I share it if you're listening. I say that respectfully. Um, but um, there's, especially in women's, you know, writing about women's, um, any kind of issue at all, there's a way in which we don't go there. And so that compels me to want to do it. That's great. Yeah, Sharon Old seems a perfect example as a, as a predecessor. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, and that's interesting, the idea of, uh, you know, poets who give us permission by simply having done something like we're trying right. to do ourselves and um yeah, it wasn't even conscious though i didn't yeah. actually you know because what i tell my students is that if there's if you're stuck on a poem the the way back in and you, you know you don't so you need a way back in so you have a draft but you're stuck and it's not quite right mm-hmm. content for me was always a really difficult way back in so i would and, and so I, i'll say change you know work on the form in some sort of way and get back in some other technical way and so the content stuff happened as a consequence of me stopping at to th- I stopped thinking about content, and which opened up content, if that makes any sense. I started thinking yeah. about, you know, I found a different line. This was a while ago, but I, you know, I found a longer line. Um, and it was really weird because I started out as a fiction writer, and I was a very bad fiction writer. I actually went to Holland University, and I have this a master's in fiction. But I would write stories like the girl gets in the car, and she drives and thinks all the way, and she gets, you know, a piece of, you know, she buys a loaf of bread, and then she comes back thinks all the way back. No narrative, completely not. No narrative. And so I finished that program. I wrote a book of stories in which nothing barely happens. And then I started writing these poems and, and things and form, formal concern. Like suddenly I could tell a story. Um, formally I sort of understand sort of narrative structure and then the content came as a consequence of that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely does. And there's, yeah, of course, I mean, there are so many good stories in, in all yeah. of your poems, you know. Um, do you, you know, maybe, uh, but they're also, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, sort of pigeonhole them or classify them as narrative poems, which they are yeah. not, you know, uh, you know, they're kind of like riffs and, yeah. uh, and, or, you know, like moments of, you know, outcry, uh, annoyances, grievances, complaints, you yeah, know, praise poems, etc. Um, so yeah. how do you kind of, so does narrative sort of just slip into your work, um, well, another realization I had, you know, and I think these are all things. I'm going to say this in our panel. I think one of the things I'm going to say in our panel, but um, I really do think that the, that if you that we have to listen to what the poem is teaching us, and so it's not something that I so much discovered as something the poem taught me. Yeah. Like as as I went along, the poem said, "Okay, Adrian, you need to know this. You know, why didn't you know this before? Here's what you need to know." And one of the things I really realized at some point in you know early on, at some point I don't know, when I was working on the poems in Bruhaha was that, um, was what I started calling Borg poetics. You know, the Borg are, in, in, they're bad and in, in, they're in Star Trek. And they're the species, <laughs> right. they're the species who, they assimilate everything, right? And they're bad in Star Trek. They're kind of evil. But I thought of the Borg, the idea of Borg poetics as being a good thing. That this really is, is a kind of a, 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 a sort of a hybrid narrative, lyric, speech-driven, rhetorical poem. So a lot of the stuff is a lot of speech acts. You know, so the idea of the speech act with a story that ends on, that is also lyric. And so, so, so the project sort of came to be, how can I make this as, how can I cohere all these sort of kind of opposing 
um, sort of discourses. Yeah, sure. Or, or, or means of, uh, means of speech or means right. of kinds of speech. kinds of language or kinds of yeah, language, yeah. Or, yeah. or occasions of language or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, your first book, uh, Rascal Bruhaha, opens with an epigraph from Marilyn Robinson, um, which I'll just read a part of. Um, so it, uh, it reads, uh, For families will not be broken. Curse and expel them. Send their children wandering. Drown them in floods and fires. And old women will make songs out of all these sorrows. And sit in the porches and sing them on mild evenings. Is this how you see your poems functioning? As kind of uh, you know, songs made out of the sorrows of the past? And sung or recalled in tranquility. I just loved when it, whenever you read like anything out of that novel. That was like one of my most favorite novels yeah. of all time. I think that it is a poem, and of course, you know, it took her a long time to write for obvious reasons. And I think, and I do at my very best, when, you know, when I feel like I'm succeeding, which is not very often, because another thing I was going to say on the panel is that. The minute I'm done with a poem, I, you know, the poem has taught me what I could, it could teach me. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm very down on it for some reason. It's, and it's, it's weird because I shouldn't be so contemptuous. So there shouldn't be so much self-contempt. It's probably not healthy. But um, when I'm operating at, you know, premium or something, I do, I, I do think that, they, that um, one of the purposes of poetry is that whole, and that's a sort of a lyric idea, although it can be done with different kinds of language, that it hurts to be a human and that we, you know, the older we get, the more we lose and the more we suffer. And that, that you know, poems are an antidote to this when they are really, when they really are working. And I'll say, okay, I've, you know, like I've written one that really does that. But I do think that's one of the things, you know, I've been thinking lately about the question about what does a poem do that other genres can't do? Um, so students will say, I'll say it's a lyric poem. It's a, even if it's a narrative poem, it's a yeah. lyric. I mean, you know, it's a lyric. What is it? You know, it's not a documentary film, people. It's not a novel. It is not a short story. It is not a commercial. It is not like what is the and thing? It is probably not a book length narrative. It is or not an epic right. Poem, so right. therefore, it's right. hard to classify it as a narrative. Right. right. So what is it? What is the genre? Why? You know, go do something. Uh, take another class if you want to do those other things. This is a lyric poem. This is about human feeling. Um, this is what Sappho, you know, <laughs> this is what those poems are doing. This is what all the best poems really do. They, they sort of, they, they provide us release for this emotional, for, for the, tr the trauma that we have to sort of experience as a consequence of being alive. And um, Sharon Olds, one of, the, one of the poems I remember, it's just kind of a funny thing, but she has a child. One of the children in one of her books early on just says, I hate being a person. That's one of the lines. Yeah. You know, she just says, I just hate being a person. And the poem kind of captures that. And I think that's kind of, you know, poems can do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, part of, of course, um, being a person is, uh, is, is family history, which is, which is a subject you're keen on. Well, if not keen on, you address uh, often. You know, divorce, remarriage, motherhood, the estrangement of your father, you know, all of these things. Um, so, uh, you know, how do you as a poet make art out of the autobiographical? Oh, that's the big, that's the, like, $30 question right there. <laughs> that's the big one. Um, you know, I, I, I really have a hard time not writing about my, you know, self or not writing about my own experience. And partially that's my southernness. Now, southerners, they say, um, they're famous people who say that southerners are interested, they're, domestic, they're interested in domesticity, hmm. the landscape, um, they can't stop talking about these things and the family and the family is the most important thing So if you live in a sort of if you have an agricultural background and you you need ten people to run a farm You know it probably makes sense, right. but it, then it becomes a sort of an obsession 
I grew up, when I first started wanting to write, I grew up on all those Southern prose. I became, I just absolutely in love, loved all the great prose stylists yeah. for them, you know, many of them Southerners. Mm-hmm. And um, they, Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor, Faulkner, Eudora yeah. Welty, um, and Carson McCullers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it is the lyricism, right? Southerners are really, really, and part of it is this, idea that the tribe there's something the family is the center of the tribe or whatever and now this is all happening to me i'm not conscious of being the same way because i think i'm not anything like my predecessors i'm cool and i'm new and i'm different but of course you know the family becomes the center of my life and so therefore it becomes the center of my experience um and you know there's i think poems are sort of really good places where two opposing things can happen too i love the idea of contradiction and you know like the poem has to actually I think Robert Hass says somewhere that the poem has to almost mean the opposite of what it says. Uh-huh. You know, so it's, um, so even though I'm praising that experience, I'm also arguing about it off, you know, right. and it's very diff- it's a very difficult kind of thing to be at the center of a family. Yeah, 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 praise and, uh, you know, complaint yeah. or, or, yeah, they seem too opposing Just, and, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and forces yeah. that work often absolutely in in individual poems yeah 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 it's, and <laughs> i love course, this and i hate it and here's it's why. really and i'm bound to it and i'm trapped in it and i you know this is who i am and i wouldn't be myself without it and all these things are kind of happening all at the same time mm-hmm. <laughs> um many of your lines are uh invigorated by references to popular consumer culture uh batman boxer shorts cinderella daniel boone goodwill terry gross Etc. Um, what does poetry, or maybe just your poetry, gain by including these things? What, if anything, does it lose by omitting them? That is such a good question. Um, I've had all kinds of intellectual discussions with my students. I remember back in the sort of, I guess it must have been the 80s by now, about the idea. I remember the whole sort of question of using products in your in fiction and, yeah. you know, hyperrealism in fiction and... Um, was it tawdry in some way, or this this idea that it was sort of tawdry, or unworthy, or, um, or unworthy, yeah. and not high? It's not high art. Right. Um, one another discovery that I learned from when I started writing these poems, instead of the stories that I was writing before, was that um, I operated best at a sort of a lower, not a lower diction. That that the diction um, that I spoke in and thought in was actually the diction that I could write the best poem in. Although it's all always sort of complicated by other dictions so I love low diction and I think that the words yeah yeah quote-unquote low diction I think the the uh, the pro you know I don't like the idea of saying Kmart but um, <laughs> I'd like the idea I, I like it better than any kind of uh, other kind of Latin word that's abstract mm-hmm. you know so I think it really was just an effort to, to keep the the diction accessible and to keep it uh, sort of accurate to experience. Although it becomes pop, and there are all kinds of other theoretical ways you could think about it, but I think it's just a matter of just, you know, I say, I read, I read this morning for Wesleyan, and I said, fuck, like seven times. I'm like, <laughs> I have got to stop doing this. This is, but the idea is a tone thing. You, you, also, you also said, too, uh, right, uh, uh, I was reading in a church once, and I had to remind people that, you know, you're supposed yeah. to laugh at these poems. Yeah, and they were very serious, you know, and I'm reading these, and I'm like, these are funny. And that's another thing I discovered, too, was, was, was that the mixed diction was a sort of a way to have a, a funny, you know, it was a way to kind of make the poems funny. Yep. Um, and I think Southerners are good at this. Do you, are you familiar with, um, have you ever read Lewis Norton? Some of, 
Wolf now Whistle and the Sharpshooter Blues. Well, yeah. he's just one example. There are millions of examples, but this, this, these tragic, tragic, tragic things are happening, and they're so funny, you know. And I think that that uh, uh, that's really our experience. I mean, Charles Simic says somewhere that you know the the human experience is a great comedy. Mm-hmm. So it's either comedy or it's a tragedy. And one of the things I remember deciding too, I, I remember making this decision in my thirties. At some point, I've decided. I decided it was going to be a comedy. Yeah. It had to be a comedy because I couldn't bear it. I wouldn't be able to bear it otherwise. If that makes sense. Of course, it makes sense. It? Yeah, and yeah. That, so, kind of using humor as as what as as a means of release dealing with, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, like there are all these funny things. You know, we, you know, we talk about death. I mean, we have to. We we the older we get, the more we lose. The harder it gets. The more senseless it becomes. Uh, the more injustice you recognize. Um, you, you become familiar with your own limits. Um, you become familiar with the limits of others. It's only cool. It's only bearable if it's funny. And in my now, there are people. They're great. You know, they're great tragic writers too. And you know, but for me, I decided that was going to be my worldview. Yeah. Um, that I was going to have to. You know, and it's it's kind of hard to be funny all the time. But sure, sure. You know, it's, <laughs> it's definitely my goal to yeah. try to. You know, and I think it's cathartic, really, ultimately. Yeah. Um. You grew up in the South, of course, and were born in uh, Virginia and, uh, and went to Hollins. Mm-hmm. Um, would you classify yourself as a Southern writer? Uh, are you comfortable with, you know, that kind of Absolutely. Yeah. Even, so, so I went to Hollins and said it, and wrote all these stories I hated. And that, this is a very strange quality in me because I really like it, you know, don't like it after it's done. But it, before I have written it, I really like it. Um, but, then, but, but then I started writing these poems, and then I was teaching for years and years and years and years that I was teaching and I was working on these poems on my own and then I went to Warren Wilson in North Carolina mm-hmm. and then I, I, you know, I studied poetry so I studied fiction and I studied poetry um, and both of those are southern schools and I'm a fifth generation Virginian in fact my mother's like you know she still calls the war the war of northern aggression uh-huh, sure. called, you know I get depressed I was depressed recently about Egypt and, I, and about Iraq and I'm like mom it's like this shit is you know, falling apart. This is not good. And she just said, it's "Although wrong. Egypt might end up being a really good thing, it might be a good thing." Yeah, it's just like this. It's just all this. You know, it seems yeah. like you know like what I think is that we're actually in a time of social change. That's right. Like big yeah. social change, mm-hmm. which ultimately is good because you know the thing that comes out on the other side of it. But I'm like, oh, it's just bad. And she said, "Not as bad as the Civil War." <laughs> you know, which is like, which is what she always says. In a yeah. way, it's really comforting. It's like, okay. It's, it's like none of my kids, you know, I have to send them to Appomattox. Yeah, um, so, you know, and so, so I was the first person, I consciously left the South. I consciously said, I'm going, you know, I'm leaving. I'm not, I've done this. I can't, I don't need to do this anymore. But I write about it all the time. So I yeah. can't escape it. Right, right. You know, so, you know, and some people are really upset with regionalism, but, but I, the South is, is a concept as much as you know, a place. And, right. and a construct. And, and, and a construct. <laughs> and, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, you've been living in Maine for a handful of years now, uh, you know, way past the Mason-Dixon. Yeah. Um, how has moving so far north affected your writing, if at all? You know, I think that they're, the, sto- the stories, the poems are becoming less narrative, uh-huh. although I don't know that that's true, and I'm very anxious about it, so I'm like, something is happening, the landscape. <laughs> and this is, a, this is, you know, at least mythologically, a southerner's response to landscape, which is that what, you know, what is happening is not from me or coming from me it's the landscape it's the land scarlet you know um so but it's a different kind of landscape in some ways it's a different kind of landscape but i'm from the part of i'm from appalachia really which is the part of virginia 
that meets with North Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky. And that part, that Maine is really like, you know, I call it Appalachian North. It, well, it, I mean, it, the Appalachian Mountains go up through right. Maine. And, yeah, and yeah. so it's, you know, there's a different accent. Yeah. That people are very quiet. They don't talk as much as Southerners. Yeah. Um, they don't tell stories in the same kind of way. They're not, they're very suspicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, they're, cold. it's very cold. It <laughs> can be cold. Yeah. Oh, the people, reticent. Oh, the Yankees. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're just, you know, they're definitely. And, and so I'm, the, from, I'm from Massachusetts. So are I can, you? I can, you know, I can speak. Well, to I freak people out because I say things and I asked, somebody was reading at Colby and, and the college radio station was coming in through the mic and all these people were sitting there very politely and the poet was reading. And I raised my hand and I interrupted her and I said, excuse me, but I can't, we need to fix that. We need to stop. The, you know, I right. can't hear you. Right. And I asked my friend who's from Maine, um, I said, would the Mainers, would they, you know, would they just, if they were sitting on spikes, would they just sit there or would they say something? She said, they would sit there <laughs> very politely. And so when I do speak up, which I, I just do temperamentally, I just do, um, you, they are very, they're very shocked by it. Um, but you know, I, I remember when I was watching Katrina on CNN. Yeah, they were really getting upset because the, the White House was saying there was no, there were no people um, at the Civic Center, and the <laughs> reporters were at the Civic Center. Right, they had just gotten there and said there are all these people, and so this guy is really upset. And he said, um, you know, they started getting really upset. They started cussing, mm-hmm. and they started just getting very emotional. And I realized I had this moment where I thought it's cultural. Yeah. Half of what I think is my personality. Yeah. Is culturally, you know, this is something that I have learned from that culture, yep. and it's just different in Maine. You know, I'm definitely considered to be flamboyant. Mm-hmm. Um, well, plus and, you're a poet on top of it, so which is even, you know, <laughs> they don't know what to do. Yeah. They go, mm-hmm, you know. <laughs> um, Linda Gregerson has praised your poems for harnessing what she calls the vernacular sentence. Um, the poems in both of your books seem beautifully American in their rhythm, syntax, use of slang and their flair for gossip, sass, backtalk. Uh, when you first started composing in this mode, how much of a conscious decision did you make to incorporate the drawling, sprawling language of every day? That's a good question, too. Brian, these are great questions. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, I think it wasn't, like, it was formal. It's amazing how, um, you know, formal, actually, I am. Like, when I'm, when I'm kind of writing, I'm like, well, a little bit how a taboo breaker. Okay, like, here's yeah. the taboo, and I'm going to break it. So the first taboo is actually how long the sentence can be. Um, and when I was in graduate school, I studied with someone who kept on saying, you cannot, the line cannot be that long, Adrian. And I'm like, have you not read Whitman? <laughs> That's right. You know, are you you're kidding me? It's like, and, but, he, but he was very upset by it. And I said, it's, it's got to be. But I didn't actually know why it had to be yet. I wasn't sure exactly what was happening. But I was extending that sentence. Actually, probably, you know, she... She tells me more by saying vernacular sentence than actually I'm not conscious of it. Yeah. I'm conscious of the, the, the formal, like how, how long of a sentence can I actually write before it collapses, before it breaks. That, that was the, te- you know, the thing I was asking myself to do. And the vernacular, you know, so, so it was sort, I would say it was sort of somewhat accidental. Yeah, you know? And she called it, you know, um, which is wonderful. Um, but now you know, the problem with doing something is that you're sort of bound to, to do it. And so then I would have, if I tried to find a, write a different kind of poem, mm-hmm. um, which is what I'm sort of trying to do now, you're, you know, it's like, what do you do? You're, you have to start all over again. That's and, right. Well, and, you struck on something and something yeah. that does seem, you know, authentically new, I think, you know, yeah. um, 
And that's right. And so now it's like, okay. Well, well I've done do that. It again. Yeah, yeah. Or, or do something. Do something else. Or do something you know, else. Yeah. Get something else that's new. And then, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah. well, what are you, what are you, uh, what are you working on now? Um, the new book, you know, basically just came out. But um, but are you? So I joke. I like to tell people that I just wrote a report. I mean, one of the consequences of um, working so hard and I, you know having I love my job at Colby um, is that. But I'm getting sucked into this. Um, you know, I don't know what it is, administrative kind of work. Yeah, and so I just sure. wrote a 33-page report with tables and charts. Almost read it out loud. I'm like, let me read the report. You know, but um, that's the consequence of putting artists and and you know we have to find roles. a way to make a living. But you put it, you know, the, my big fear is that you take an artist um, and you turn her into a bureaucrat. Or this is, you know, you know, there's this guy who wrote this book. And I'm not going to McGilchrist maybe about the brain, where he kind of argues that the left hemisphere is growing, the left hemisphere, which is responsible for language, um, but, but, is, but not emotion and tone, which is coming from the right hemisphere. Um, he's saying that the, the left hemisphere is growing bigger, and it's actually taking over more of our, the way we think. And the, the more, we, you know, it's not interested in context, it's really fragmented. There are all these kinds of things about it. And it really worries me when I do that kind of work. You know, and this is kind of like a form of superstition, yeah. but that... Um, the, the, the things that are good, like the right hemisphere is interested in context and um, story and cause and effect. It has a sense of humor. It, it, it likes, it understands tone. Then I'm going to lose those capacities if I work in a certain kind of way. So I'm like, ah, I've got to go <laughs> get on a ship or do something. Right. I don't know. Well, so, so, you know, uh, do you find that, um, do you find that poetry is sort of an antidote to, uh, to, you know, to, clerical duties, to uh, this administrative, you know, dross? Well, one of the things I know about brain science is that language is from the left yeah. and emotion and tone are from the right. And so to write a poem, and this is what I would tell anybody who was looking at an undergraduate curriculum at any college that had any kind of question about what we need to teach young people, you, in order to write a poem, a good poem, you have to use both sides of your brain. So you literally are wiring, and those, the more those two hemispheres talk, um, the more you can say you have a whole mind. You, have a, you, know, you can say that, and you can say that you're training people to actually operate, you know, more holistically. I mean, that is not that is not an exaggeration to say that. So, um, you know, I'm not I'm not t- really left-brained. I mean, my husband actually did all the charts and tables. I actually <laughs> didn't do that. But he, but I had to like get the numbers. I had, you know, yeah. and right, um, had, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's just not, you know, it's not the same kind of. It's not the part of me you know, that I would like to, to cultivate. It's just the, the consequences. And we're all in this situation. I, you know, I've met a lot of writers who are like, oh, I'm, you know, I have to do this, I have to do that. And it's, it's, it's very not the same thing as composing and writing a poem. Yeah, and, and also kind of exhausting in, a, in an entirely different way. than It's completely, you know. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, whereas so, maybe writing is, has its own kind of exhaustive qualities, but still, you know, you get such... You get such wonder and you know amazing things out of having written something you know but yeah. but having put together a 30 page report oh god i mean there's a sense of accomplishment <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. look I've just, or, or release or it's like, or, it's, like know, it's over right. but you know auden said that the purpose of the poem is to the feeling the poem should produce is joy even hilarity yeah. even if the poem is sad yeah um and there's that whole idea of release again and there's a sense that something has been stated that couldn't have been said any other way that needed to be said. And when I go into a class and I read a poem, and you know, of course I don't read my own poems, but I read a poem um, and I'll say, did you feel that? And you can tell that they're not familiar, especially at first, especially, you know, freshmen, 
or I don't teach freshmen, sophomores, they're not familiar with that question. They're not used to someone asking them a question. They're, people are saying, do you, you know, think, you right. know, we're thinking. Right. And I'm like, no, just lower it down. You know, did you feel that? And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. But you can tell that they need practice. And this is education in the arts. Mm-hmm. This is why it's so important. You know, Robert Bly says somewhere that um, we have ears in our heads in our chest, in our guts, and in our genitals. Mm-hmm. And we should listen with all of yep. them. And this is the kind of thing that Robert Bly would say. Of course. But this is the kind with, of thing... While wearing we, a mask. While, yeah. <laughs> it's like doing all kinds of things. But it's true, and it's it's scary when you have to defend education in the arts. Yeah. Um, we're constantly defending it, that we're actually undermining, you know, the parts of ourselves that are capable of it in some way. Or it's like a fear that we should, we should be mindful of, maybe. And do you... Um... Do you yourself respond physically to uh, poems in your own reading? Um, you know, do you do you laugh aloud or cry or you know sweat or? <laughs> Especially when there, are, you know, when Bruhaha first came out, I would read some of the poems from childhood, <clears throat> which I'm not sure I'm writing as many childhood poems, but I would read them and people would come up to me and say, "I'm so sorry." <laughs> And I would say, you know, it's not factually, like, A, it might not be so, so factually right. true, but I'm glad you're moved by it. I mean, that's good, but, but I'm okay. I mean, it's like there's a way in which, you know, I'm not, you know, whatever trauma the poem might be sort of trying to find a way to articulate is completely over now, yeah. and, you know. Um, I do am surprised by my willingness to say anything. So when I'm reading myself, I'll say, I can't believe I said that. That seems, that whole, that quality in me where I'm like, you know, uh, which I actually get from my dad, I think, a little bit. Um, I'm surprised by that because in some ways I'm actually pretty shy. And I'm like, who trained you to say things you're not supposed to say in public? Um, and I think he did. I think my father did, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, you, you, we've, we've talked a little bit about teaching. Um, you know, how has your, uh, how is your, you're teaching at Colby College, of course, now. Um, how has teaching affected your work as a poet, if at all? Or... Well, I remember the great thing about teaching, um, and I've always I've only taught in undergraduate schools, and I went to a panel earlier that was, a, and people were talking about humongous universities. I, I mean, I, I just fainted and had a seizure when they said they're like fifty thousand people, yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I was just I can't believe. It. So I don't have any experience in a big university. My experience was all liberal arts. The great thing about the liberal arts, um, which means small classes, so there are fifteen people. Um, the wonderful thing that I got by by being by being allowed to teach by being you know because it's a privilege to be able to you know if you're if you are if you're you know have good students um to be able to learn with them and so i think a lot of my education uh, you know it's self-taught you know they say all poets are self-taught i think much of the what i learned about language and how it works and and what what people what can be done with it i learned as i taught Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so you know i started out teaching like most people i taught comp I started teaching. I didn't even want to teach. I wanted to be Annie Dillard, and I wanted to live in a cabin yep. and slaughter things. It's a ha, slaughter things and eat them. I don't know, but I just didn't really want to be in the world. I wanted to be. I wasn't interested in the world, which seems silly and naive and romantic and crazy. But my circumstances forced me to have to find work, and so I end up teaching. And in the con, it was a consequence of trying to explain to young people, this look what can happen. I learned. You know, so that is the great, and you know, as long as we're learning, then education works both ways. And they'll say, you know, I found this, and I'll say, well, I found this. That's really great. I, you know, I think that that um, it's a great gift. I feel very privileged to be able to to work with young people, and I'm so proud of my students at 
I've got uh, when I'm running to them here, I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, they're they're doing well, and I'm proud of them, and I love teaching. Yeah, and you and, yeah. you, and you learn from your students. Oh yeah, a great deal, like, it yeah. sounds like yeah. yeah. Yeah, except for technology. I remember once, you know, you know the uh, Gerald Stern poem, The Dancing, very famous. Oh, yeah, yep, yep, So yep. I was trying to show, I was always doing a simple thing. I was, I was trying to prove to the students that they had heard the boleros, whatever, uh-huh. no, Ravel's bolero, whatever it was. Is that right? And so I'm, all it is is a CD player. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not very complicated technology. <laughs> and it, it, was a, it was a fiasco, and I'm trying to play the song. And one of the students said, Adrian, how do you get through the world? <laughs> And I said, I just don't know. And then, so when it's technology, so it goes from CDs to iPods, I, it's very frustrating, to, and the technology keeps moving, because, you know, I remember eight tracks. Um, I go back that far. And so that kind of thing I learned, but at a certain point, I don't feel that I'm, I'm not technologically inclined. And I think that we're moving. Somebody said that well, there was this idea of psychic trauma, that we have are trying to learn so much new technology that it's fragmenting us in certain ways. Yeah. And, I, and I do feel, in a way, I feel traumatized by it. Um, so my iPod annoys me, but I like, I understand what it does and I like that. It still annoys me. It doesn't make sense. I prefer records, you know, albums. I say album. Well, the sound is completely different as well. Well, students go, students go, what did she say? She said album. I'm like, (laughs) it's not like horse and carriage, you know, it's an album. So except, so they teach me things I don't want to learn sometimes. Right. Um, a friend of mine, uh, who's also a poet, we were talking about both of your books. Um, and he, he likes your work a great deal. And, um, and he sort of was wondering, he, he made the comment, which I agree with, which is basically, um, uh, over the course of the two books, it seems like the speaker has grown by like 30 years or well, something. <laughs> that is so interesting. Um, yeah. could you maybe comment just a little bit about, um, about, you know, you, or at least the speaker as a, you know, Southern woman, a Southern wife, Southern mother, um, you know, and how you think that that. That, how did you kind of achieve that progression um, just from a first book to a second book? Such an interesting question. This is why I don't know. I'm not sure I know the answer to that, except part of it might just be this, land, this the change in landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I feel like I learn retrospectively. I don't know if everybody learns retrospectively, but I feel like, uh, well, actually, I know for a fact that I was diagnosed I was, uh, as a leap learner. Okay. Which might actually, uh, very young, first grade, um, and I annoyed my parents because I spoke, I wouldn't speak for a long time, and all of the, my cousins were all talking, and I wouldn't say anything. And then, I, you know, and it was late, it was like I was two, and I said, I would like a, you know, whatever, I need to go to the bathroom now. I could, I, you know, I spoke in a complete sentence, uh-huh. but I didn't say anything for a long time. <laughs> and so my mom ha- actually, she had me test it, and um it was leap learning. It was called leap learning, which means that there'll be these plateaus, and then there'll be this advancement. Now, no one has ever said that to me about the two books. Um, I know that I'm really anxious about not repeating. My, I'm very anxious about being boring. I don't want to be boring. And so I think that part of it is just this idea that, you know, um, you know, I don't want to say the same thing over and over again. Of course, we are always writing the same poem over and over and over again a certain way. Um, so, so I think part of it's just, just you know, that idea. I like the brouhaha, I like the expansiveness of brouhaha, and, and I wrote it and I had more time. Mm-hmm. So that could be just one of those things. You know, Raymond Carver said that his stories, he, this is, you know, under dispute, but he said that some of his stories were the consequence of having kids and not having time and <laughs> ride him in this car. He would go in the car, you know, and I have, oddly enough, been poor most of my life. Um, 
and and done things. I, I gave a reading in Boston at the school and and they sort of read my bio and they said and then someone said well so someone raised a hand and they said how did you do all that how do you and they said you have three children and I said yeah and they said how did you do that and I'm like I don't know I just don't know I mean I wasn't on drugs but there was there was for a long time there was a lack of money there was a lack of time there was a lack of security um, until very recently and so that that forced me to work really hard and so you know I told someone recently I'm like I think I worked like 70 hours for like 15 years straight you know I just didn't stop and and so that so so I had so you know I don't know what that has to do with the you know with what's going on but a lack of time I think if there's anything that the world can give poets and writers all forms of writers it's time and mm-hmm. you know a room of one's own and space and money which I just didn't have I had to be you know I found myself having to be responsible for kids yeah in my idealistic world, somehow someone else was going to do that for me. <laughs> I think that was the big shocker. You know, I couldn't just, you know, somehow I had to feed them. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you mentioned a little bit that you're kind of, I want to talk about maybe what you're working on now. <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that you're, you know, trying to write a new kind of poem, something something a little different from the long, sprawling lines of, uh, of the, your first two books. Could you comment yeah. a little bit on... Well, I started... I tried to write these... I'm still... I'm looking at motherhood, and there are these little complaint poems, and, I, and they don't sound like me at all, and they confuse me, completely confuse me. Um, like I wrote a poem that was... I don't know. I have a series of them. They're um, like seven lines. They're all, you know, really little tiny poems. Um, and people are not expecting those kinds of poems from me. They're like, where's the rest of it? You know, where's... <laughs> you know, it's like... and But but that's coming out of an anxiety to, to do something sort of different or to sort of stretch myself. But they're still... The content is, is probably really similar. They're not as funny. They might not necessarily be as funny, right, this particular moment in this in this series. Um, I had a poem last year com- that came out in Gulf Coast called... Um, what was it called? Um, Walking It Off. Okay. And they're death-obsessed. And... Um, David Shields, do you ever see uh, the Huffington Post? I think he has a new yeah. book out, and there's like he had this little excerpt where he's quoting all these people, but he says that the writer's job is to aggravate the fear of death, um, which I really love, and he's yeah. quoting all these different people. And when you know, they're, so they're they're really they're they're somehow trying to be about motherhood and death at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they're and they're little, and I you know, and I am not you know Robert Creeley, no. so it's really <laughs> so it's really hard. So I don't know what's going to happen. You know, they'll probably end up in a sequence or they'll end up being put together in some some sort of way. But that whole feeling that you have to do something different, that could be false. Sure, that's right. That's I mean, right. it could be not something that I need to do. And I don't know why I'm so anxious yeah. about it. Look at Whitman you know? and, uh, you know, yeah, uh, like, Wallace Stevens thing. and, you know, countless yeah. other poets who, who sort of did, which you mentioned before, um, you know, write the same poem over and over and over again, which is right. intensely interesting. Or Charles Wright today, who kind of seems yeah, like he's in that vein, you know. Yeah. Um, I guess we doubt ourselves. And so we think, oh, what, you know, what more can I do? What, you know, but I'm always trying to find a strain to put myself under, you know, and maybe the long sentence is, is you know, maybe I could find a different sort of strain, but I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm writing reports. That's right. <laughs> well, Adrian Plevins, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for tuning into the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriters.org.